One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. Hi, I'm Andy Murray and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport on a day that we have seen history made on Eurosport and on BBC Radio 5 Live. Catherine Whitaker from Eurosport is here and that history has been made by the great Serena Williams. 23 Grand Slam singles titles, not out, she's still going and she's got Margaret Court in her sights next, but... I don't think there was ever a moment in that match, that final with Venus Williams, where it was ever really in doubt. And first of all, what an achievement. Not never in doubt, but uh, the, the, the early stages were highly bizarre. The four uh, opening, the, the four breaks of serve to open the match and incorporating the racket smash in there. I mean, that was pretty... Oh, yeah, that was good. Tell us about that. Well, she smashed a racket after about a game and a half. In the third game, I think, she did that. That um, was awesome. It was sort of a fall combined with a racket smash, which I really applaud. If you can style out falling in that way, that's that's I can get on board with that. Um, but, yeah, so, so, some of their matches in the past have felt bizarre because they've been felt so muted. It's almost like the emotion is too much. They can't. They can't convey it. It all is bundled up inside somewhere so deep, none of us outsiders can see it. And it was the opposite of that tonight. They were so demonstrative. All the emotion was so palpable, even from Venus, who, excuse view, uh, excuse people that watched me on Eurosport an hour or so ago, but because I used this same pun, and I didn't mean it to be a pun, but she's usually very serene, Venus. She's usually more serene than Serena on the court. She does have this remarkable serene expression that comes over her face, which is just... Okay, I can cope with this. It's not, it's not going great, but okay. And she didn't. Well, I mean, she still had touches of that tonight, but she's she was an awful lot less serene. She was a lot more demonstrative, a lot more like the Venus that we saw in her victory celebration after her win over Coco Vandeweghe. Um So yeah, it was it was still strange that much. It was, but it was strange in a more enjoyable way I think than their matches in the past and uh, even if it had been a hideous match it would all have been compensated for by their two victory and defeat speeches I think because they were marvellous both of them they were weren't they I, I, I thought that I was 
yeah, I was pretty moved by the whole thing, and you could see, you could feel the love between them, and and you know, we we talked last night about the the, the challenges that they face in trying to be competitive against one another, given their relationship. Well, they were competitive. I mean, I felt it was a pretty error-strewn first set. I think nerves were were a factor in that first set, but that's understandable. And you know, it was it was it was it was good enough as a final for it to be enjoyable, but it its significance historically was so uh, extreme that it, that that it it overrides everything. And also, just the sheer fact that we had them on the court together again. And that it was such a nice scene afterwards. I, I really, really enjoyed that element of it. Yeah, it won't be remembered for the match. It'll be remembered for the story. When people look back in 20 years and go, oh, that year when, you know, it was Venus Serena in the final and Federer Nadal and Serena got 23 and Venus got to the final at 36. No one will remember the match, I don't think. Maybe the racket smash in the third game. But I don't think the match will be remembered. Um, but there was so much else going on there's so much other significance I think that's okay really um I think she'll now I think I don't think she'll now go oh I've got 23 the the record is broken I think 23 was just a step towards 24 and 25 and beating Margaret Court she doesn't want there to be any asterisk after her name when you say most prolific Grand Slam winner of all time she doesn't want an asterisk there Serena Williams not one bit she's going to catch Margaret Court I think yeah I, I couldn't agree more I think that that is w- what's driving her I don't think she wants any any discussion about it uh, I, I totally agree I had the pleasure of speaking to Chris Clary straight after the match Catherine so that's twice now I've got to speak to him from New York Times and you haven't I'm not I know I shouldn't rub that in but I'm going to um and it was typically illuminating from Chris Clary and and you know we were just as somebody who had charted their whole careers you know he'd been around when they first came on the scene he's been a, a tennis writer for 25 years and he was he was recounting his early memories of them and and comparing them to to other players who've come through all sorts of adversity and and different backgrounds and his view his conclusion was there's never been anything like the Williams sisters in terms of the story, their backstory that they have, the, the, the way that their father was just channel surfing one day and, and found tennis on the telly and thought, well, that looks like quite a good idea for two, two young girls to, to take up and, and, and earn a good living and, and big greats, all-time greats. And, and he has gone from that to training them into achieving what they've what they've done today i mean it's it it is something that i think we probably will only realize how extraordinary it is in in years to come but i think we're getting there i think the world is starting to cotton on to to what an amazing story that is yeah and i would extend that to the whole of sport really i obviously don't know every single story there's ever been in all of sport but i've never heard of one as incredible as this uh taking account of everything you know there's been so much talk building up to this final about venus and her i mean serena initially called it a comeback and then retracted the word comeback didn't she on the court because she didn't go away and come back um but serena williams six years ago had a pulmonary embolism and richard williams thought she was going to die Uh, you know that's that really is a comeback that really really is um and that's just that's just one of 
of countless things you can cite that and any one of them make it the most extraordinary story in, in tennis and there's there's tons of them and every facet of it all is mind-boggling really yeah that one I, I do remember interviewing Richard Williams at Wimbledon and uh, and him him saying that you know I, I thought I was going to lose her I thought I was going to lose my daughter and um, yeah to see her here now looking like a superhero yet again winning a Grand Slam title at the age of 35 and not looking any different in terms of her physicality on the court she doesn't look I mean, and it's the same with Federer, I would say, too, in, in terms of being mid-30s. May, no, I, I, even with Federer, I still can't really see any creaks. But with Serena Williams, I don't know if you, if you went back 10 years, I'm not sure you would see any difference, difference in her physical ability to get around the court, her explosiveness, her flexibility. It's still there. No, I, I I couldn't put it better. Absolutely, she. I mean, in some respects, she's she's better. Um, yeah, she, um, absolutely. The, the, they're not aging, are they, David? We are. They're not. Yeah, we certainly are. Crikey! Before our very eyes, we're <laughs> aging. Uh, although I did have a back-to-front cap on today, Catherine. So uh, you know, maybe that knocked off fifteen years. It was only to try and stop me getting sunburn. There are there are other hats designed for that purpose for adults. David. Was it not a good look? Designed purposefully to prevent adults having to look like idiots by wearing... Right. An adult wearing a backwards baseball cap has just walked into the room, so I'm going to have to stop what I'm saying here. That, that's true. And, uh, and he, yeah, he looks similar age to me, or maybe a <laughs> bit older. But anyway, uh, yeah, see, it's working for him. It works for me. So from here, how many is she going to end up with? I heard, When I interviewed... Patrick Moratoglu after her second round win after Lucy Safarova and I asked about number 23 he said oh she's not looking at number 23 she's looking at 24 25 and 30 I'm not sure she'll get to 30 <laughs> anything's possible but, but I mean at some might. point I mean I wonder what will go first whether it'll be the physical elements or her drive. I would imagine it would be her drive. Once uh, she's when she's broken Margaret Court's record and got 25 on the board, I'm not... There, there's nothing else to shoot for. Nothing, is there, really? And, I mean, yes, there's, uh, there's 26, 27, 28, and she can play as long as she wants. Tennis will happily have her. But in terms of point to one's career, I'm not sure there is a point when she gets to 25. Yeah, and she's somebody who's not a machine, you know. She she has her her desire and her c- commitment, I suppose, her drive, well, drive, as you've put it, to the sport, has waxed and waned a bit over the years, less so recently since she's been nearing that 22 and 23. She seems to have been consistently, completely committed to the sport for the past few years. But before that, there were significant ups and downs. You know, people doubted whether she, you know... She got into acting a bit and fashion and all of those kinds of things. And I think people doubted whether she'd certainly ever get back to the very top and undoubtedly whether she would dominate in the way she is doing now. So, yeah, we know she's not a machine. So we know that it's not like she'll just keep going forever more as long as she can, like a steam train. So I think you could be right. But then when she wins them, she makes it look pretty easy, doesn't she? Maybe... Maybe she can keep winning them even if the drive does drop a bit 
even if she does take a bit of time away or, you know, whatever it is, when she's at her best, she can do it not easily, but she certainly makes it look easy sometimes. She's so, so much better than everybody else when she's on a game. That's, that's what really struck me this, this week is the way when she came up against Joe Conter and it suddenly got serious and she was up against the informed player of the tennis circuit and you saw a different player altogether. And that was the moment I think we all thought, ah, she's going to win the title. Yeah, she's like Stan Wawrinka in that respect, isn't she? Better, but at her most vulnerable, I think, in the early rounds. As soon as it kicks into the second week of a Grand Slam, a different animal emerges. And yet, yeah, well, well, Joe Contest feels like a long time ago, but that was probably the worst possible stage of the tournament for Joe Conter to play Serena Williams, with the possible exception of a final. But then you look back to last year's final, perhaps not, you know. I, I do think that was just terrible bad luck for Joe Conter, really, how that all fell. But it's hard to see any scenario in which Serena wasn't going to be champion here now. But then hindsight's a wonderful thing. She is the champion. She's the champion for a 23rd time at a Grand Slam singles event. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So that's the, uh, the women's tournament done and dusted. The singles is over. Yesterday we had the, uh, the wheelchair doubles victory, incidentally, for, for Gordon Reed, who completed the calendar, or sorry, the career Grand Slam uh, in the, uh, the wheelchair doubles. So congratulations to him. The men's singles final on Sunday, Rafael Nadal against Roger Federer. It, I still have to keep saying that to believe that that's going to happen tomorrow, Catherine, as we sit here at sort of 10.15 in the evening, which is a much more sociable time, isn't it, than we've been recording of late. Um, but it's, um, it's just mouth-watering, isn't it? The, the anticipation around here, people are buzzing, aren't they? Yeah, it's unreal. I quite often find the end of Grand Slams a bit odd, the sort of feeling of petering out and... Uh, the, the buzz does somewhat disappear. Yes, you've got the, that incredible buzz physically on the main court, but around and about, the buzz does rather um, peter out a bit. But it doesn't feel like that this year. I think the uh, grounds will be absolutely packed tomorrow just with people that want to be here, not watch it live, not have a ticket for Rod Laver Arena, but just want to be here and feel the atmosphere Um probably an expectation that this will be the last opportunity to do so i mean who knows we didn't think this would happen but i would certainly expect this not to happen again um 
I, we're going to hear Mats Verlander's interview with Roger Federer that we, he did for Eurosport, but I actually, on my walk to work, during which I filmed a little dreadful video in which I predicted that Venus Williams would, would win the title. Yeah, it was dreadful. Um, so hands up to that. Uh, moments after I finished recording that video, I crossed paths with Mats Verlander, who was coming away from the tennis, and I made a hilarious joke about how he was walking in the wrong direction. And he said, oh, I've just, I've just come from interviewing Federer on site. Uh, and he was going back to the hotel because game set and Mats wasn't filming till later. And I said, oh... How was he? And he said, oh, really, really relaxed, as you'd expect. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, as you'd expect. And he goes, I think he's terrified, though. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's listen to that, shall we? Congratulations, you're in another Grand Slam final. Can you believe that you're in another Grand Slam final? Um, yeah, I can. But uh, if you told me this 12 months ago that you would be in the finals of the Australian Open, uh, I would have said, sure, that's absolutely possible and there is a good chance. But... Now, looking back at the last six months, maybe not so much, you know. I would have predicted um, for me to be another Grand Slam final would take me longer. Uh, so the comeback has definitely surprised me. Why do you think you've made it through this tournament? What, what's been working? Um, well, I had to battle through the first couple of rounds. So I think those were important not to, not to lose there or either not to lose too much energy or not get hurt, basically, as well. And then I think the third round against Burdich really gave me a lot of answers and a lot of good feelings going forward. Um, I think also the Nishikori match where you have to overcome a really good baseliner uh, gave me the, the confidence necessary to then make the move all the way through and beat guys like Zverev who comes in and, and Stan who likes to play from further back. I think I just uh, was able to start to believe that actually I could really maybe win the tournament here, which I, I didn't believe before the fourth round. Uh, in terms of your level and, and Rafa's level, you played the first final in 2005. How much better do you think you guys are now than you were, let's say, 10 years ago? Because you must be, because the game is moving. You would think so, right? yeah, yeah. You, you would think so that you're a better player. Um, now exactly what it is, I don't know. I mean, I think in Rafa's game it's clear. I think he's definitely serving better. He's got more pace on his first serve. His second serve is more consistent. Before he used to be a little bit, you know, like a little bit dodgy on that second serve sometimes. And, and he would get affected on how you returned against him. Um, now in terms of movement, I'm not sure if we're moving bo both better. But it definitely seems like we have less um, less time in general because everybody hits bigger but I think we're both probably also better from close to one another I think he's really improved on the baseline and me the same I'm coming over the backhand on the return much more than I ever have in the past that's definitely due to the racket as well with the bigger racket head size it allows me to swing a bit freer on the backhand side and then I think the forehands were always good both of us mm. we both had always good forehands and I think that's always depending also a little bit on confidence uh, in terms of a special match, and I hate to hype it up, but to okay. me, this is potentially the, the greatest tennis match that, that we're anticipated to see in the history of professional tennis. Or is it a completely new final for you because it was a while since you guys played? I mean, it's a bit of everything, you know, uh, and I understand the hype and I understand the, the build-up to it. Um, for me to call it the biggest match ever, it's, it's, it's exaggerated, but I understand where people are coming from to say it because there was also a lot of another few finals that Rafa or myself or other greats have played in the past that had so much meaning mm -hmm. to it. So um, is this one different? I'm not sure. Uh, it is just because we haven't played in a long time. Um, it comes unexpected. Mm. Um, I still try to see that as in a very low-key way. It's still, I'm on the comeback. I still have a great uh, tournament 
to play and I think that's how I will actually go out tomorrow and nothing to lose attitude you know which has served me well for this tournament and it's maybe the first time in a long long time that actually I can go out and play Grand Slam this way and maybe he will do the same and that's why we actually can be more relaxed about this final deep down of us but understanding the importance of it Roger good luck and well done so far All right, thank thanks you very much, much. Thank you. appreciate it so there's Mats Valander with Roger Federer. I found that fascinating, Catherine, that you say he was terrified. Oh, dear, dear. That's Mats Valander's version. I don't think he said that because he necessarily seemed terrified, but just that he's never going to have a, bit, a better opportunity again, I don't think, to win number 18. Do you not think? Do you not think it's that if possible. he... Do you not think if he were to, to make the Wimbledon final and not play... Nadal, who's his nemesis, who's who's beaten him twenty three out of thirty four times. Yeah, I think I think that's possible, but he knows this is likely to be as good a chance as he'll get to win number eighteen, um, and that must just be tantalising, and the desire must almost be too much. I think he needs to not let it overwhelming. I think there is such a thing as wanting something too much. I mean, he's Roger Federer, you know, this is pretty pathetic advice. Don't want it too much, Roger. Um, <laughs> but but I can imagine that being a problem, you know, not being sort of somehow consumed with how massive an opportunity it is. And, oh, my God, if I don't get this one, then everything I've been working for. Did you hear, though, the mind games he was playing with himself in that Vavrinka match that he talked about afterwards he said when he got into the fifth set and Stan had come back to two sets all and he told himself Roger Federer just relax you know you, it's amazing that you've got this far you didn't really expect to get this far just just relax and let your shots go I've, I found it very interesting that he actually let us into his own internal conversation that he has with himself the sort that I always wonder it's it's when I'm commentating on on radio I kind of I kind of guess at that. I paraphrase what, I, what their body language and their shots and, their, and the way they're behaving, what, what I suspect that they are saying to themselves and their opponent and their surroundings. He actually told us in that, in that moment in the press conference, I think that's really rare that you get a player saying, I was thinking this, I told myself this. And, and the fact that he was trying to settle himself down and let the shots go, I'm sure that's what it'll all be about tomorrow. That for him, if he's going to to win this title, he needs to be able to just let the shots go and not just settle into a routine with Rafael Nadal because he will lose. Yes, and on the first point, that's a psychology that I can really, really understand. You know, instead of hoping and wishing and 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 thinking, oh my gosh, if I don't do this, then it's the worst thing in the world. Sort of jump ahead and think, okay, what's the worst case scenario here? I, which for Federer in that situation was losing from two sets to love up. Make yourself okay with the worst case scenario somehow. Think, okay, that's rubbish. I'm but, quite good at that. But I can handle it. And then sort of suddenly you can relax and everything else becomes a bonus. That's a very humanising um, expression of his psychology, I think. Um, and on the second point, it's interesting, I was talking to Chris Bradnam, Eurosport commentator, who will be commentating the final tomorrow night with uh, Mats Verlander and Free McMillan. And uh, we were talking about how exhausted he felt Nadal was at the end of yesterday. Uh, and he said he cannot believe that's not going to be the decisive factor. You know, watching that match with his own eyes, he thought it was one of the most exhausting 
physical battles he'd ever seen. Uh, and I and I said, you know, what everybody's been saying about how, how we were talking about how much Federer might serve and volley and people saying the longer the rallies go on the less chance Federer has and that seems to be a general consensus of opinion and he said yes in general but he thinks Federer should or might come out there and perhaps not on serve he'd probably be quite aggressive on serve but he thinks on return games he might let himself get into some rallies just to test Nadal out physically and just get a gauge for how much he's struggling in the longer rallies I don't know I don't know it'd be interesting that, 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 would, that would be that would to me be a heck of a risk really I, I think I think he's I mean I can see where Chris is coming from uh, I can see the point but I wouldn't want to be doing too much testing to be honest because no. you're going to get battered yeah getting into a rally with Rafael Nadal is a risk at the best of times clearly even if you're Roger Federer but it's interesting I mean that does seem to be the main topic of debate today how big a factor the uh, the, the phys- physical exhaustion will be for Rafael Nadal I spoke to Carlos Moya yesterday he said he got to bed about 4.35 a.m did Rafa they had a half an hour hit today and he said he felt okay didn't give much more away from that it sounded like it was a pretty gentle hit he certainly didn't you know he didn't say oh yeah it's awful Rafa's exhausted he's gonna you know collapse like a pancake uh in the final but equally he didn't go oh no it's all fine he's absolutely fine I think it will be a factor I just don't know if it'll be a decisive factor the first set though is crucial if if Federer wins that that's enormous what you're saying if he wins the first set he wins the match maybe maybe (laughs) still trying to picture a pancake collapsing I've not seen that before well I mean a, a a pancake is an already collapsed sort of souffle, isn't it? It's post-collapse. Well, precisely. Hence the phrase flat as a pancake. Anyway. I'll let you get away with it. Um, we had an interesting few hours, didn't we, today? Uh, going, to get, going to speak to the great and the good of the, of the, of the, of the locker room. Um, Catherine and I were double-teaming the best and biggest names in tennis. And uh, let's hear from them, shall we? First of all, there's Catherine talking on Eurosport to Mr. John McEnroe. And uh, we were talking about the fact that uh, Andy Roddick was saying the other day that this is going to be the most important match in history. So Catherine asked John McEnroe, is this the biggest match in Grand Slam singles final history on the men's side? Oh, I didn't think that Roger was going to win another major. And when I saw him start playing the way he did, but more importantly, moving the way he did, I actually was like, oh, my God, this guy can, can do it again. And then Rafa hasn't played much at all the last couple of months. He seemed like he struggled with his movement. Uh, I had seen tapes of him playing Andy here years back. Didn't seem like he was moving quite as well. Well, that's dissipated. And he's playing some incredible tennis. So it's sort of this dream scenario that's taken place. I've had arguments either way over the years. Who's the greatest player of all time? Is it Rafa? Is it Roger? So this actually becomes a more meaningful match, not only because each guy's trying to win another one, but with Rafa having a pretty solid career head-to-head lead, if he beats him again on a fast hard court, that will say something about, you know, who's the greatest of all time. People might be thinking maybe Rafa's back in the picture. There aren't many people in the world that know what it's like to be part of an era-defining tennis rivalry. John, you are one of them, with Bjorn Borg, of course. Can you tell us what it's like and why it's so special? Why Roger wanted to play Rafa in the final, even though he probably 
had a better chance against Dimitrov? Well, I'm not 100% sure he wanted to play him in the final, but it's a better story. But uh, I was fortunate to have some great moments with Bjorn Borg on the court, uh, matches that I'll never forget. I only wish we had done it more often. So if there's any envy with me looking at these two great champions is the fact that they've been, uh, been able to face off so many times in so many big occasions. They still seem to get along. Uh, that was the one guy you mentioned, Bjorn Borg. I had three or four rivals. A couple of those guys I didn't get along real well with. But the main thing with rivals is that they make each other better. And I think it's pretty clear over the years you've seen how much better these top guys have gotten because they've been forced to by each other. And in terms of style of play, what we're expecting from the actual match, most people seem to think that the longer the matches, uh, the rallies go, the greater chance Nadal stands. Are you hoping to see plenty of serve and volley from Roger? Well, I think you're going to see Roger try to take time away from Rafa. That, I think, is a sensible idea. Um, Roger has not played as much, uh, and he had the extra day off. Um, He is five years older, so you have to take that into account. Rafa just played for five hours, but he did it again. He did that before when they played here and was able to bounce back quickly and win in five. So this is... I really, I mean, the, the matches are the best when you're not quite sure what's going to happen. You're not going to quite sh- sure how consistently he'll serve in volley, how effective will be when he takes it early, how defensive Rafa will get, or how offensive he will get. Because if you notice when he played Dimitrov, he kept changing gears, mixing things up, trying to find a way into the match to finish this guy off. To his credit, Grigor played amazing and forced him to really lift his level. So, that, you know. I can easily make arguments for both these guys, but uh, obviously as a, a fan of tennis and a tennis player, and what a shot, a great shot in the, this, this is for our sport, I'm hoping this goes the distance. You mentioned the physical aspect, the long match that Rafa had, the fact that there are similarities with the final they played here in 2009, that five-set semi-final Rafa had against Fernando Vidasco. He's eight years older now. He's always Nadal. 30 now. He's a whole 30 years of age and he hobbled in and out of his press conference uh, after the Dimitrov match. Will Rafa, for once, be tired? Well, you know, literally I've only seen him one or two times where he's been tired. He sure didn't look tired at the end of that match, but uh, he is a human being. I believe he bleeds. So uh, when you go that long, that hard against that tough an opponent... Um, and you only have a day to bounce back. Certainly there's a lot of people wondering how far back can he come. It's hard to imagine even he can get back to 100%. So based on the speed of the court, um, I would give Roger the edge and the fact that he's fresher. Um, but based on their history, that's Rafa. There's no question. Even on outdoor hard courts, he's got a significant, significant winning record against Roger. So this is uh, one of those coin flips. So, Catherine, with John McEnroe, what, what were your impressions of, uh, of John the, the day before uh, this Grand Slam singles final? Because he, he is like a kid in a candy store, a sweet shop, to use a British expression. He loves it, doesn't he? Yeah, well, you took the expression out of my mouth, really, because I was going to say exactly that. He's just sort of buzzing with excitement. Uh, he's a tennis fan, really. He's certainly a Federer and a Dahl fan. He already thinks that those two are the two greatest of all time he said it in that interview um which is very very interesting and he knows again as he talks about in that interview he knows the significance the beauty of being involved in a rivalry that transcends sport um and how special that is how unique it is and yeah he gets a bit misty-eyed talking about it really feel like you want sort of Bjorn Borg to walk in the room while it's happening so they can just have a a manly embrace. (laughs) 
Yeah, because, I mean, those two, they just dote on each other, don't they? It's quite funny to think of that, Mackinner and Borg. They're the first tennis match I ever saw, the 1981 Wimbledon final on the TV. I'd heard all the stories about Borg, and that was the first match I ever saw. And to me, Borg was the good guy. Mackinner was the bad guy. I was supporting Borg. I've since told Mackinner about this. Didn't go down very well. Um, but the, um, the fact is, those two just adore each other don't they really and and that's that to me is is a great parallel we were t- you talked about it to john in your interview there rafa and roger they share something really special yeah and McEnroe and borg i don't think they have loads in common apart from sport and tennis you know i don't don't know either of them well at all but i i don't think that i don't think you know they sit down and it's like oh they could spend hours together talking about any old you know talking about politics or history all any of that i think it's just that they could sit in a room in silence together and have a wonderful evening you know just because of the warmth emanating from both of them you know and i don't i rafael rafael and roger federer aren't particularly similar human beings are they i can't imagine them chewing the fat over any anything besides tennis really but that's all they need you know that that tennis provides that bond and it's yeah it's pretty amazing sure is another one of the ones we spoke to Catherine and I I interviewed John McInerney as well but we decided to use Catherine's because hers was way better but anyway we also both spoke to Boris Becker and uh, we'll hear from him talking to me on BBC Radio 5 Live and I was very in- interested to know how big a surprise it was to Boris. Obviously, he's just finished coaching Novak Djokovic. He's been at the, the vanguard, really, of, of the sport in that regard, having coached a top player against these two. And I wanted to know from him how big a surprise it was to see Nadal Federer in the final. Very big surprise um, when you would ask me two weeks ago when a tournament started. Nobody knew how Roger recovered after a six-month injury layoff. Nobody uh, knew how Rafa is going to play in his uh, you know, first major after, again, an injury layoff. So you know, they haven't played competitively in a while on their level. But after the first week watching both players, I thought, hmm, they're hitting the ball well, they're feeling good physically, there doesn't seem any problem. And then once this, you know, uh, Rafa came through the Zverev match and I thought Roger came through the Burdich match before the Nishikori, I thought, woof. They're looking, they're looking very well. And then, you know, Andy and Nova gone. So it was anybody's game. And then these guys, they're very experienced. You know, they can handle pressure better than anybody. They've done it all their lives. Um, they, they, they smelt the flowers. Um, beginning of the second week, they realized once, you know, they go on a run, you know, it's, it's, it's a possibility. And then six days later, they're playing the final. Can I ask what it is like to be part of a rivalry like that. I always remember you being a rival of Stefan Edberg's, particularly, obviously many other players as well, but you had three Wimbledon finals in a row against Mm -hmm. Stefan. I I remember the, almost the affection between the Mm -hmm. two of you, obviously huge competition, but what is it like, what does it mean to these guys? I think, first of all, they enjoy it. I think they have tremendous respect for each other. You know, one wouldn't um, be without the other one. I think that's, they really complement each other. Uh, different personalities, different looks, different style, different countries. You know, they couldn't be more different, yet they have met in so many major finals. Um, great ambassadors for the game. Um, um, you know, the two most popular players in the world probably still today. Uh, and it's just an incredible um, career. And I think that, that, that explains 
their friendship almost. You know, they they you know they don't have to explain each other what they're going through because they do do it themselves. And I think that's the beauty of it. I think that's the fascination. Uh, uh, it'll be a matched. Uh, it, it'll be a match watched by millions and millions of people, and it will fifty-fifty. I mean, there most matches you have one, you know, fan favorite to the other, and this one I think it's it's Paris. Do you have a feel for which way it'll go? No feel yet. Um, obviously, the question is how will Rafa recover, physically and mentally, uh, but how will Roger recover? He all had five sets with with Stan. He had a day more, uh, but he's five years older. So I think it's a pretty even playing field for both. I think whoever has emotionally and physically a bit more left in, in their tank will win. Boris Becker, isn't he? Isn't he? Isn't it interesting to be able to hear from him now that he isn't coaching Novak Djokovic? Because for the last two or three years, he's very politely declined any interview requests that I've given it to him. I don't know about you, but it's it's he he. He's a bit guarded at times about what he wants to say. I think he still feels a, a responsibility to Novak Djokovic, a, a kind of, um, you know, uh, he doesn't want to let him down and he doesn't want to disrespect him at all. But, you know, he, it's, it's nice to see him at least talking again. He's, yes, absolutely. And he is still guarded without question. You know, I asked him what I thought was a completely reasonable question. I said... Uh, if you were you've coached against both Nadal and Federer in a Grand Slam final, uh, so tell me about that. What would you be telling each of them to do against the other? And he said, "Oh, that's a cheeky question." <laughs> Bloody great question, Boris. <laughs> I thought, is it cheeky? I mean, <laughs> and then and she asked that, and then, and then I then I asked him a prediction at the end, and he thought that was a cheeky question as well. So yeah, he doesn't. He definitely doesn't want. There's certain things he does want to sit on the fence about. He does definitely doesn't want to come out in any kind of favour for one or the other, and I I'm sure that does stem in some way from some sort of protection of of the, the situation with Novak and and all of that. But that he's he's still able to say interesting, incisive, insightful things. I think he's still well worth speaking to. <laughs> Yeah, I'd agree with you. Well, you know what I mean. Sometimes it's sometimes you do see um, on the telly and hear on the radio interview with sports people just because they're a name and they're sports people and they're not necessarily that interesting or don't have much to say, you know. But who cares? Because it's I'm not going to name any names. Uh, but that's not the case. That's not the case. You know, he's he might be guarded and careful, but he's not. You know, media trained with an inch of his life. He's still incredibly interesting and knows the sport inside out and it's also interesting that the further he gets away from this relationship the more we will learn i'm quite sure you know it's just the just the way of life isn't it i remember um miles mcclagan when he stopped working with andy murray and for a while he was a little bit unsure what am i allowed to say without betraying this guy's trust from all all the time we spent together and now a few years detached he knows exactly where he stands you know he, he knows how he feels and, and, he, and he's he's very straightforward so, yeah, I can, I can fully understand that. Catherine, we sit here. The Bryan brothers are currently a set down against Henri Continent and John Piers in the doubles final. We're sitting in a completely deserted Eurosport green room, which in about, what, 12 hours' time, 18 hours' time, something like that, is going to be a hive of activity, isn't it? The whole place is, because one of the biggest Grand Slam singles finals on the men's side that we've ever known is going to take place on Sunday. Who's going to win it? 
Oh, I thought Sunday was going to be your last word and the music would start playing. That would be that. <laughs> you don't know me very well, do you? Oh, who's going to win it? Well, I got the... F- William, the um, William sisters won horrendously wrong. Although I did pick Serena before the tournament, so I'll have that. Thank you very much. Slightly blew it yesterday. Um, so, yeah, I got that one wrong. Um... Do you want me to go first? You go first. Fine. Uh, Nadal will win yeah, in four sets. I'll go Federer then. In four sets. Are you saying that because you actually think it though or just to disagree with me? I don't know. I don't know. I really <laughs> don't know what I think. I don't, it's, too, it's too much. It's, too, it's all too much. Yeah. I, I, for me, it's just, uh, you know, maybe I'm cheating because Andy Roddick said it the other day and, you know, I, I, I hold a lot of stock in what he says about tennis matchups and and he just feels that the matchup doesn't work for Federer the majority of the times he hasn't beaten him for 10 years at a Grand Slam tournament he has never beaten him at a Grand Slam on anything other than grass he's lost the last six in a row you know these are pretty compelling statistics and facts now if Nadal is physically broken down from what happened yesterday you would understand it I don't think that will be the case. I just can't see it. He's got one more match to win. He's going to be hes going to be like a ball chained up and let go. And he is going to just hurtle out of the box. Now, Federer needs to meet him for me. He doesn't need to faff around and find out whether Nadal's fit enough. He needs to take it to Nadal and, 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 and unveil his greatness before us. Because when he is on Federer, he is still the best player on the planet when his game is absolutely maxed out, it's the best. Even against Nadal. Even against that hooked forehand cross-court relentlessly. I just, I just don't think Federer can do it for long enough. I don't think anybody could. I think Dimitrov was unreal yesterday, but he didn't win. So for me, it's Nadal. It's probably four. But uh, I hope we have a great final. It would, be, it would be awesome to have a really good match now. That speech has made me feel a bit silly now. It was that was that was quite compelling. <laughs> well, yeah, I've got to have one in twelve podcasts, haven't I? Anyway, Catherine, it's been fun today. Uh, we have spoken to all the great and good of the tennis world. Hope you've enjoyed hearing from them. We'll be back with a tennis podcast after the final, regardless of who wins. It's going to be a, a really momentous day. Do enjoy it. Eurosport is the place if you want to watch it in the UK. Uh, BBC Radio 5 Live is the place to listen to every single ball with myself, Russell Fuller, uh, and uh, all the team. We've got Pat Cash with us as well. What? Watch it on Eurosport. I, I said that. And now, now you're trying to... Nick your viewers? Yeah. yeah. Well, watch, watch it on Eurosport, everyone. <laughs> All right, fine. Okay, listen to it on the, on the radio <laughs> at the same time. You can, have, you can do both. You could actually, do, you could actually sort of do, do the two at the same time, couldn't you? I have been known to do that before, yeah. I know you are. The, the, the sinking is the issue, but if you're really committed to the cause, you, you can get it right. Sink it up. The commentary with the pictures. Nothing against you, Chris Bradham, <laughs> incidentally. Uh, Catherine's quite happy to have one earbud in for BBC Radio commentary and one for Eurosport. But anyway, uh, the Eurosport player as well is a great option if you want to be able to uh, follow the circuit year-round in terms of the Grand Slams. They've got the uh, the US Open in the, in the autumn as well. They've got the French Open and uh, Wimbledon too, uh, parts of that and highlights. So loads of good sport on the Eurosport player, 1999 for a full 
year. We're going to be back with another podcast tomorrow. We can't wait. We can't wait for the final, and we'll speak to you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.